the subject of spring cleaning. We live in the province of Quebec, and of course we have four seasons here. I remember once visiting Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Any of you ever been to Disney in Orlando? Remarkably clean over there, very clean all the time. They don't have the, the, uh, the blessing or the curse of four seasons like we do. And usually what happens is when the snow melts, and most of it is melted, you begin to see all of the dirt that was covered by the snow, and of course you have to clean it. And in our homes, you know, we do this thing called spring cleaning. We all sort of hibernate in our homes over the winter. And then when, the, the, you know, the thaw comes, we come out of hiding, you know, and the men's beards are long and they see the light. And then it's time to start cleaning the home, you know. And this is kind of a tradition that I've observed in, uh, in Quebec culture because, of course, we have four seasons. And it's a great, great thing to do, you know, you, you, and it's a great rhythm to get into. But how many of us do the same thing with our, with our spiritual life? And we do a bit of a, of a check uh, and a bit of a spring cleaning with the things that are going on inside of us and not just the physical things that we can see. So that's going to be the theme for the next few weeks, this idea of spring cleaning. And we're going to use a book in the New Testament for this really simple book, uh, the book of Philippians, which, which uh, we'll get into in a minute. Uh, for this. And I want to tell you in advance um, about something that I would challenge you to do. I'm going to call it the, um, the Philippians challenge. Philippians is only four chapters long. Four. You can read it in 10 minutes. If you're a reader, maybe it will take you half hour, 45 minutes if you, you know not too much into reading. But it's a great, simple little letter. And I'm going to challenge you before this message and at the end to take what I call the Philippians challenge and to read that book, the book of Philippians, this week. And then to read it the next week, and then the next week, and then the next week. It's only four weeks, I think, the series that we'll do, because it's four chapters. Uh, but repetition is an amazing thing. And when you develop a sort of steady diet of the Scripture, you get it into your brain, you get it into your heart, it's going to alter your life. I guarantee you, if you take this challenge, you're going to see a difference in your life in many, many different ways. And it's a super, super easy challenge. This morning, we were over in U-Turn with three or four people there. And there is a gentleman who comes every single Saturday morning, and English isn't even his first language, and he's memorizing scripture like, wow, really serious in terms of doing that. And so, you know, I like to challenge people and give them a little bit of homework. So I'm going to give you the Philippians challenge uh, this morning. Before we, we get into the, the content of the first chapter, uh, many people wonder, what in the world is a Philippians anyway? <laughs> what is it? And do we just get into the, to the book without knowing anything about it? Well, where was it? Uh, who wrote this letter? Why was it written? When was it written? So I want to give you some background so you understand what you're reading and where we're coming from, uh, starting with a little bit of geography, okay? If you'll, if you'll bear with me, those of you who, you know, you don't like geography, I'll try and make it interesting for you. This, this is a map of the world of the Bible in the time of the New Testament, okay? And I've circled a few things here. Down on the lower right-hand part of the screen there in the southeast, 
you can see a little circle around the city of Jerusalem. This is an important city. We read about it all the time in the pages of the Gospels in the New Testament. You have all the stuff around uh, Jerusalem. You have the province of Judea. You have Samaria, Galilee, Phoenicia, all these things around there. You have Caesarea, a little city north of, of Jerusalem that's important. So that's one area that you need to know about for Philippians. Where was Philippi, the place up in the center there, so in the north part, you can see in the province of what was called Macedonia back then, you can see Philippi with a little red circle uh, around it, okay? This is, this is the place where Paul is writing his letter. And then on the west side, you can see Italy there, and you can see Rome. These are three important places for you when you look at the book of Philippians. And the next slide... Uh, will show you in red what those places look like today and what they're called. So, you know, if you go north of Philippi, you can see Bulgaria and Romania and to the, to the northwest, Serbia, just so you understand where you are. Of course, Rome is still there and, and uh, Israel is still there and Jerusalem is still there. So that's what the world looks like now compared to what it looked like before. Not much change, really. So uh, Paul is writing, and you can go to the next slide. We, we took a look at him last week uh, on Easter Sunday. This is the man who writes the letter. He writes more than half of the New Testament. He is the man who's transformed from a church persecutor, as we saw last week, into a church planter. He has a dramatic experience while he's trying to persecute a bunch of believers. And, and Jesus appears to him and his life is like transformed overnight. And he turns into this church planter, plants dozens of churches on the map that we just saw, and uh, writes more than half of the New Testament. And the, the crux of his argument when he writes is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the man who wrote this letter uh, that we have before us in the book of Philippians. All right, He's writing from prison. Uh, this is one of the four what we call prison epistles. An epistle is just a fancy name for a letter, really. And uh, Philippians is one of them. Ephesians is another one. Colossians is another one. And Philemon is the fourth. We call these the prison epistles. And um, Philippians is to a church in Philippi. Ephesians to a church in Ephesus. Colossians to a church in Colossae. And Philemon is to a man. We're going to look at the book of Philippians. This is a book that we can say with pretty, with a lot of certainty that it was written at around A.D. 62, almost exactly then, uh, from Rome, where Paul is in prison. And you saw Rome on the screen. Uh, the church in Philippi has a very curious beginning that you can read about in the book of Acts in chapter 16. And I'm going to just give you a little background so you understand how the church started. Uh, Paul ends up there in Philippi because he believes that God has called him to the province of Macedonia. And he arrives there and he gets to the city gate and to the, to the river. And he meets a, a woman by the name of Lydia there who's a dealer in fine purple cloth. 
And uh, she's a, a person who understands about God, but not about Jesus. And Paul starts teaching her. She invites him into her home. And then Paul starts to, to get active in this city of Philippi, a very significant city in the province of Macedonia at the time. And then the action starts. Uh, he goes into this, this uh, uh, public area, and he is met by a woman, a young woman who's a slave. Very common in that day. Many people were slaves. But this woman had a particular ability uh, and they said that she could predict the future. And uh, so she earned a lot of money for the people who owned her by allegedly telling people's fortunes. And she follows Paul and Paul's entourage. And uh, she's interrupting what Paul and his entourage are doing. And she's, she's shouting, uh, these men are servants of the Most High God. And they're telling you how to be saved. And a day after day after day, she's interrupting Paul's uh, teaching and preaching in the public square. And Paul gets really annoyed, and he says uh, to this uh, apparent evil spirit that's in this young woman, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And we're told in the scripture that the spirit left her. And then the owners of this girl uh, realize that they can't make many, any money off her anymore. Apparently, her supernatural abilities are gone. They're quite upset. So they take Paul and his friend Silas and they drag them to face the authorities there in Philippi. And there is an uproar in the city. Uh, and there's this charge, you know, the, these people are, are Jews who've come here. And they're advocating these customs that are unlawful for us Romans. And we need to deal with them. And the crowd attacks Paul and Silas, and they, they order them to, the magistrates order them to be stripped and beaten with rods and severely flogged, the scripture says, and then throws them into prison. Not very nice. And, uh, and, and they're locked up there. Their feet are chained in stocks there in the jail in Philippi after being beaten and flogged. And strangely enough, the two of them decide to sing. And around midnight, the scripture says they're praying and singing hymns to God and uh, other prisoners are listening to them. And all of a sudden there's this earthquake and the prison doors, boom, they pop open like this. And the prisoners, everyone's chains comes loose, uh, come, uh, came loose. And the jailer, the, the captain there, he wakes up and he sees that the prison doors are strangely open. And he draws his sword as if to kill himself because he knew under Roman law, that's the penalty for sleeping on your post and letting your prisoners escape. And Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And this jailer is very, very frightened. And he believes the things that Paul was preaching and teaching in the jail. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus. You and your household will be saved. And uh, the guy takes them into his house and, and they're baptized and he feeds them. It's a really, really beautiful story. And when it's daylight, uh, the magistrates send their officers to the jailer and says, release these people. And uh, uh, there's an order to release them because they can't find them guilty of anything. And Paul says, well, they beat us without a trial. 
and we're Roman citizens. They threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly. Let them come and escort us out. So the officers report this to the magistrates, and, uh, and there's a, to appease them, there's a bit of an alarm there because they realize they're Romans, and they had done this to them, and they request that they leave the city. They go to this lady Lydia's house again where they meet with people, and they're encouraged, and then they're left, and a church is born. And this is the beginning of the church in this place called Philippi. And uh, Paul is going to write them a letter from prison where he has found himself. You have to know why the man is in prison to understand why he's writing what he's writing. And you can see again from the book of Acts how he ends up in prison. I'll summarize for you eight chapters in five minutes, okay? From Acts chapter 21 to Acts chapter 28. The Apostle Paul starts this journey to Rome uh, back in Jerusalem, which we had seen in the map. And there is a violent confrontation that takes place there, very violent, where Paul uh, goes into Jerusalem against the council of people who say, if you go there, you're going to get severely persecuted there. They're going to tie you up. They're going to persecute you. He says, I don't care. I'm going to Jerusalem to preach the gospel. So he goes there. There's this violent, violent confrontation. And the religious Jewish people from the province of Asia at the time, they say, this man is, is teaching against our law, against our customs, against the temple, against this place. He brought Greeks into the temple. He defiled our temple. And we're very, very upset. And we want this man punished. Just to pause. Uh, these are the religious people who are very, very upset with Paul because of his preaching about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you were here, uh, Good Friday and Easter, uh, the very similar things are happening to the Apostle Paul that happened to Jesus himself. In fact, Jesus had predicted that his followers would face the same kinds of things that he would face, and we see it starting to happen even to the Apostle Paul in this uproar in the city of Jerusalem. So Paul speaks to the crowd, and uh, he uses the Aramaic language to speak to them, and this incites this largely Jewish crowd that's opposed to him, very, very upset, very angry. So the Roman commander says, we need to get this guy out of here. They call him into the barracks, and they say, well, we're going to flog him. Maybe that will, will quiet this crowd. And then the, the Roman commander finds out, uh-oh, he's a Roman, just like what happened in Philippi. He's a Roman citizen, and so the commander says, well, what are we going to do with him? Let's, let's release him. Let's have him stand trial in front of the Sanhedrin, the same group of people that Jesus uh, stood in front of at this, this trial that we looked at on Good Friday. And so Paul, very smart, he's in the company of the Sanhedrin, and he's got two groups there. He's got the Pharisees, and he's got the Sadducees. Let me teach you the difference. The Pharisees believed in supernatural things. They believed in angels. They believed in a resurrection of sorts, and the Sadducees did not. So they were sad, you see. Do you get that? Stay with me. I know there's a lot of history, okay? You're going to understand the book a lot better when you understand the history and why Paul's writing the thing in the first place. So Paul, very smart, uh, he, he looks at this crowd and he knows the Pharisees and the Sadducees do not like each other. And so what he's going to do is he's going to get them to fight with one another. And so he says, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. 
And lo and behold, a big fight starts to happen because the Sadducees do not believe in these things. But of course, the Pharisees do. And the two groups start fighting. And Paul is watching as the ping pong match continues. They get very, very angry. There is a big, big fight. The Roman commander, who now realizes that Paul is a Roman, says, we got to get this guy out of here or he's going to get killed. There's a big fight that's happening. And so he takes him back to the barracks. And then at night, there is a pact made by 40 men who, f- who make a pact that they will fast food and drink until Paul is dead. And they make this pact, 40 guys, and they say, we will not eat or drink until we have his body. And so they make this pact and they say, let's get him to come back to the Sanhedrin tomorrow. The Roman commanders got him in the barracks. Let's ask him to come back and then we'll ambush him, 40 guys, and we will kill him. Well, lo and behold, Paul's nephew hears of this plot. He overhears it and he goes and tells Paul. And Paul goes and tells the commander. And the commander gets very nervous because Paul is a Roman. And so he calls a detachment at night of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to secretly send Paul up north a little bit to Caesarea, which is north of Jerusalem, with a letter to the governor there, Felix. And he's going to do this overnight and get him out of there because he knows of the plot. Are you with me so far? Okay. So uh, he ends up, uh, Paul, in front of Governor Felix uh, in Caesarea. And he sets up a mini trial uh, because he knows these Jewish people are upset. Well, let's bring the accusers before and let's hear this, hear what's going on. And so you see a little mini trial take place, much like what happened to Jesus. And there's even a lawyer there. His name is Tertullus. And uh, they try to to trump up these charges against the Apostle Paul. And ultimately, just like Jesus, he's not convicted of anything. He ends up staying in this prison in Caesarea for two years. And then because Felix wants to grant a a favor to the Jews, he just keeps them there, lets them stay in the prison. Maybe this will shut these people up. We don't know what to do with them. He's a Roman. We have to deal with him very carefully. Then you have another governor who steps in the scene. His name is Festus, and he succeeds uh, Felix, and he wants to deal with Paul. So what does he do? He sets up another mini trial, and and the Jews come in, and they say, well, we want him to come back to Jerusalem. Let him stand trial in Jerusalem. And they do, the, the Romans do not want to do that because Paul says, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. I'm a Roman citizen and I'm going to appeal to the emperor himself. A very smart move. So Festus then, he consults with Herod. This time is, this is Herod Agrippa. Um, and, he, and he tells him about Paul and he asks for advice. What in the world do I do with this guy? He has now appealed to Caesar. And so Agrippa says, well, let me hear him. And so Paul gives his testimony there in front of Herod Agrippa and also the governor in great detail. You can read about it in the book of Acts and Agrippa and Festus. They hear this man speak and they say, well, he's done nothing deserving the death penalty. He's not guilty of a capital crime. We don't even know if we can keep him in prison. This is a bunch of religious stuff that has to do with them and their rules and their laws. We don't care about it. Very similar to Jesus. And when Jesus was technically exonerated by Pontius Pilate himself and yet put on the cross. But because Paul appealed to the emperor to Caesar himself, 
they're going to send him to Rome. More than 2,000 miles away, they're going to ship him off to Rome. And you see a detailed description of this long journey to Rome and a shipwreck and all kinds of things that happen. And Paul gets there, and as usual, he's doing the same thing, preaching about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And even though he's technically still a prisoner waiting for an appeal for crimes that he was never truly found guilty of. And lo and behold, he writes this letter to this church that was founded years before in Philippi. Are you still with me? Oh, man, some of you are sleeping. Okay, so that, that, just to help you, that's how you read something in the Bible, okay, especially a letter like that. You've got to know some of these things. What's the background? What's the context? If you don't do that, you're going to lose some of the punch, all right? You're going to lose some of the meaning. So, uh, so Paul writes this letter. And when we read the letter, we can see why he writes it. He's writing it to his friends um, in Philippi, and he's very grateful for his friends at that church that he uh, uh, helped plant. And he's uh, uh, showing gratitude toward these people, especially toward a particular man uh, who's named Epaphroditus, who had come to visit Paul in Rome with, with tangible gifts, probably food and, and providence for him so that he would be cared for. And uh, Epaphroditus becomes quite sick uh, there with Paul in Rome, and he almost dies. Uh, but Paul says, God spared him, and so I want to send Epaphroditus back to you people in Philippi who have taken such good care of me. So he's really writing a letter to his friends uh, trying to express gratitude for uh, their help. And this is when it starts to get interesting for us and we can start to learn things about attitude. Attitude. So lessons on attitude from chapter 1 of uh, Philippians. Uh, you're going to see a cute diagram there on the screen. The first, first thing from chapter 1, your attitude is your choice. Attitude is a choice. You see this cute little diagram where you've got the menu choices for the day. And on the left side, you've got the smiley face, energetic, caring, vital, creative. And on the right side, you've got the frowning face, angry, disinterested, cynical, bitter. You choose your attitude in the end. Your attitude is your choice. It's very easy for us to say, well... You know, these things happened to me, and this happened to me, and this is why I have this bad attitude. Uh, Charles Swindoll, the great uh, American preacher, uh, writes this about attitude. Uh, the pursuit of happiness is a matter of choice, he says. It is a positive attitude we choose to express. It is not a gift uh, delivered to our door each morning, nor does it come through the window. And it is certain that our circumstances are not the things that make us joyful. If we wait for them to get just right, we will never laugh again. Your attitude ultimately is your choice. It's your decision regardless of what happens to you in life. Some of you, you've had things that have happened to you that are very, very unjust, very unfair, very abusive uh, if you were to describe them to people, people would feel the, the, the sense of injustice and anger at what happened to you. Uh, just on, uh, on Sunday and Easter Sunday, we had a guest who is visiting with us, and this was a woman who lived through the Holocaust. Uh, remarkable to talk to her. Uh, she looked remarkably young 
remarkably chipper and remarkably joyful and yet lived through the whole Holocaust experience and, you know, lives to talk about it uh, this day. Now, you may, in your, in your own marriage, your own relationships, you may have a profound sense of, you know, everything is, is going against you. It's unjust. Uh, my spouse always has what, what they want. I never get what I want. It's like being in a, in a prison. This may be true in your own family relationships. It may be true in your job. You may feel like your job is just a horror show and all these things are happening to you and it just feels so unjust and you have a right to have a bad attitude because this has happened to you. Maybe in school, you know, your teachers, your professors, your student loans, your debt, the system, whatever. All these things can, can give us an attitude where we say we have a right to be upset and we have a right to have a bad attitude. Um, even in a church setting, and if any of you have grown up in, in church settings over time, and many of you have, boy, there's things that happen in church life that can make people have a negative attitude and a bitter, bitter attitude. Uh, I have the privilege, I guess you could say, of, of seeing that all the time. I can see the good, the bad, and the ugly in church people. Uh, and I've been doing it, you know, full time for 16 years. Man, you see a lot in the ministry. Like the ministry is not, you know, just a Saturday morning, whatever, Sunday morning service, and that's it. Uh, this is the easy part. It's everything else that happens behind the scenes. And wow, you see some amazing things <laughs> in the ministry. And I think, I think the more that you see, uh, the more that you prove, you know, the scripture that says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, let me tell you that in the ministry, that's a proven fact. Um, Charles Swindoll, the same guy who, who uh, had his quote on the screen, he tells a really funny story of uh, being uh, on a committee uh, where they were deciding whether or not to ordain a, a young man who had just graduated from seminary. And the man sat in front of this committee, and they examined this man and asked him questions. And they discovered, when asking him questions about his theology, that he did not believe that the devil existed. And so they, they completed the interview with the young man, a seminary graduate, and they, then they said, wait outside, and we're going to have a discussion and call you back in. So this little team of people, they say, what are we going to do with this guy? Look at the theological problem. He doesn't even believe that the devil's real. And so there's one man on the team, a senior man, and he says, no problem. Ordain him. Not an issue. And they said, well, how can you say that? You're the oldest guy here. You're the wisest guy here. How can you say to ordain a man who doesn't even believe that the devil exists? And the, and the man said, give him six months in the church. He'll believe the devil exists. <laughs> very true. Very funny. A very funny story. Um, so a lot of these things that happen to us in life, we say, well, I have a bad attitude for a reason, sir, ma'am. Uh, this is what happened to me. Well, let me ask you, do you think that Paul would have had a right to have a bad attitude? He could have justifiably had a very, very negative attitude when you, when you read the details of his life. You read those chapters from Acts 21 to Acts 28 and how Paul even ended up in the prison where he writes the letter to the Philippians anyway. He's seized, he's dragged, he's beaten He's bound, he's accused, he's plotted against, he's shipwrecked, he even gets bit by a snake. 
I mean, he could have written this letter to the Philippians and said, woe is me. Look at all the things that have happened to me. I just want to serve God. And look at all these bad things that have happened to me. Woe is me. You Philippians, you know, you need to be careful when you serve God because it's a hard road. And he could have, he could have written such a negative, negative letter. But he doesn't. He chooses very deliberately to be joyful. And this is a dominant theme that you're going to read in the book of Philippians if you take that challenge. Joy is a word that repeats itself multiple times uh, throughout this small letter. And he chooses to be joyful. Just in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I thank God, he says, every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Not cynicism or negativism. I always pray with joy. Uh, verse 18, uh, talking about how uh, some people preach Christ for selfish motives, some don't. But he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, uh, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And for this, I rejoice. The same theme of joy. Uh, verse 25, speaking of the possibility that he may die in prison or face the death penalty, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain in the body uh, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. Very deliberate decision that this man made to be joyful. And if there was anyone who could decide not to and have a good excuse not to, it would be the Apostle Paul. Let me give you two ingredients, if you will, uh, that, that you see for his joyful attitude just in chapter 1 of uh, Philippians. He, he, he had an attitude like that little kid on the screen. I mean, so filled with joy, even though he's writing from a prison cell. Uh, the first vital ingredient, and these would apply to us today. If you want to have joy in your life, the first vital ingredient, community. Community. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5. I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's saying, you Philippians, you and I have this partnership. Uh, the word there is a word that means fellowship in the, in the Greek language there. There's a connection. There's a community. There's relationships that he had with these people. Paul was not an island unto himself. He had these friends in Philippi. And this contributed to an attitude that he has of joy. Because of your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And he continues, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have had you in my heart and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share, same word there, in God's grace with me. There's a, there's a very powerful ingredient to joy for a, a, the life of a person who professes to follow Christ, and that is community. 
if you are a person and you have no sense of community and fellowship and relationships with other people who profess to follow Jesus, you're missing something. It's going to be more difficult for you to have a joyful attitude because there's a vital ingredient that is missing. When you're with other people who encourage you and who love you and who care for you, that can contribute, obviously, to joy. But there are many, many people who are Christians today, and it's an isolated experience. Um, people say, well, I'm a Christian. I just don't go to church. I, I love Jesus, but I hate his church. <laughs> well, the, those two things are in contradiction. When a person loves Jesus but doesn't like the church that Jesus created and built, there's an issue, okay? You, you've got to have an experience where you're with people and those people can encourage you. And now because of the internet, you do have people who say, I'm a Christ follower, but the church is out. No way am I going there. I've been hurt there so many times before. The church is filled with hypocrites. And that's true. Uh, just let me tell you, it's filled with hypocrites. Uh, but life is filled with hypocrites, okay? That, that doesn't give you an excuse to check out of life, right? So you need to have those relationships because those relationships are ultimately going to cultivate an attitude of joy. It's very quiet, uh, but that's a vital piece, a vital, vital piece in our lives. Second piece, and this is the final one in, in chapter one, and that is perspective. Paul had a very unique and very strange and very backwards perspective compared to the way that we think today. He is writing this thing from a Roman prison cell. Some people say that that picture is actually the cell where he may have written the letter. No way to prove that. Um, but he has a, a perspective on life that is quite, quite special for us to observe. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, me being shipped off to Rome, me being thrown in this jail, uh, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. His perspective is very much centered on whether or not the gospel is advanced. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Ah, he seems to like this. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So for him, it's not so much his needs and him being looked after. It's whether or not the gospel is being communicated to people who are far from God. And when he knows that that is happening, he finds this to be very encouraging. He likes this. It's a matter of perspective. When we look at our own lives today and our own Christian lives today, and most of you in this room would be people who would profess to follow Christ, how much time do we spend even thinking about communicating the gospel on a daily basis to people without God? How much time do we actually look at our circumstances and say, well, this circumstance that I'm in here is actually probably a good circumstance because God can use me to communicate the gospel to more people. I, I believe that for most people, most Christ followers today, it's not even minutes in a week that we spend thinking about this. 
We're so busy with our own stuff and our own needs and our own this and our own that, and none of that's bad. But Paul has a totally different perspective. For him, it's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. People need to know about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And if it means that I'm thrown into prison so more people know, great. I'm happy with that. If it means that there are others who are now proclaiming the gospel in a more powerful way because I'm in jail and they see me do it, I'm happy with that. doesn't matter to me if I stay in this jail. Wow, what a perspective that he has. Remarkable. Most of us would say, get me out of jail. Get me a better lawyer. You know, find O.J. Simpson's lawyer. Get me out of this jail. This is wrong. God, God doesn't want me in jail. He wants me in a, in a nice place. Not Paul. Paul says, what matters to me is that the gospel is being communicated to lost people. He goes even further. Uh, verse, verses 19 to 26, talking about death itself. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers, you Philippians, my friends, and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will actually turn out for my deliverance. Things are going to get better, he thinks. I eagerly uh, expect and hope and, uh, that, in, that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death itself. For to me, to live is Christ. His perspective is totally centered on the life of Christ within him, not his own needs, not his own wants, but the life of Christ within him. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Wow, I'm going to gain something by death. If I am going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ. The idea being that he knew that when he died, he would travel, as it were. He would go on a journey, as it were, to be with Christ. He would write to the Corinthian church uh, uh, to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. There's an immediate thing that happens when a Christ follower dies. They pass immediately and consciously into the presence of Jesus. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So convinced of this, I know that I'll remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Even death itself, he says, is a win for me. Because for me to live is Christ. It's not me. It's Christ. And to die is gain. My, my, what a perspective he has. This is, runs so counter to the culture and time that we live in where it's all about us. It's all about our needs, all about our wants. Not so with this man. Something remarkable happened to this man where he was able to look at life in a totally, totally different way. He chose the attitude of joy, number one, because of the community he had with these people, and number two, because of the perspective, marvelous perspective 
that he had. And the same thing can be true for us today. Are you challenged by that? I know a little bit of a history lesson, but this will help you to understand what you're going to read uh, in the book of Philippians. I'd like you to stand, please. And if Ajay and Luciana could come back. And there's a really nice uh, song that we, we sang on Easter Sunday, uh, Hallelujah for the Cross. Yeah, Paul would like that song very, very much. Uh, if he heard it today, I think he would sing it along with you. And he might even clap as well. Uh, so we have no drums. So, uh, you know, if you want to clap as you sing and maybe you see Paul in a little bit of a fresh light uh, this morning, let me let me pray for you. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the amazing things, God, that we learned through uh, through the life of this man who is transformed. And Lord, I pray for people who are in this room and they know God, that their attitude is not one of joy. It's one of being discouraged. It's one of being uh, stressed out. It's one of being negative, one of being cynical, perhaps. And Lord, maybe there are justifiable reasons for all of that. But I pray, God, that you would challenge people to make the choice to decide that regardless of what has happened or regardless of what is even happening to them, God, that we, in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, and through perspective and through community would choose the attitude of joy. And we pray to that end in Jesus' name, amen.